Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million, and this is a podcast where we discuss feminist issues in music and pop culture, all while empowering fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. Oh boy, do we have a big juicy episode today. First of all, not only did we do a ton of research for this, including <laughs> two hours of my life I'm never getting back by reading legal language, honestly, just really fascinating episode. We have so much to go over, starting with the importance of media literacy when you're using social media on the internet as a fan, because there was some fake articles created by some dude online making Olivia Rodrigo out to be the worst pop star to ever pop star, just like including a Johnny Depp supporter. Yeah, Yeah. it was super, (laughs) super unhinged, very problematic. So we have a brief little conversation about just the importance of what we're doing here on Name Three Songs with teaching all about media literacy and how to know what's real, what's not real, and just what to pay attention to. And on top of that, we have what I would wish to be the conclusion to the Colleen Ballinger nonsense, but I think it's the tip of the iceberg in that this crazy bitch went on YouTube and made... A video that I think she thought was an apology, but also she never said sorry once. It was more of a call out, which she did with a ukulele. She made a ukulele song telling everybody else that they need to stop causing toxic gossip just because they don't like somebody and want to jump on a bandwagon. So that was super unhinged behavior. And we have a lot to say about that. But I would like Jenna to explain a little bit more about all of the fucking research we did to the point where we had to call in every connection we have in the music industry to get a senior record exec person to speak to us <laughs> and be a source and give us some information about just like what the fuck a master is and why people are so obsessed with them. Let me tell you all, we have put in some hours. So you may or may not know, Rina Sawayama Japanese British pop artist called out Maddie Healy on stage at Glastonbury last weekend and she made a comment about Maddie Healy owning her masters which kind of caused this uproar discussion on the internet of people being like give back her masters why does he own them how dare he own them which made us realize that like nobody really knows what masters are or why people own them or that it's very extremely normal for record labels to own masters so we're going to be explaining all of this but a lot of this calls back to none other than taylor swift which is very funny because sarah said we would not be talking about her on the podcast (laughs) in the foreseeable future and here we are but of course everyone top of our mind is taylor's versions and why is she re-recording these songs because she doesn't own her masters so we're talking about why Taylor said these things. Does it really matter if an artist owns their master at the end of the day? Can they fully even own 100% of a master? A lot of the nitty gritty. As Sarah mentioned, we talked to a senior executive at a record label to get some additional information to help us explain this to you guys. And because there's a lot to go through today, we're putting all of the timestamps on our Instagram stories. And also as another little call out, if you haven't noticed on our Instagram on Saturday, we always do teaser posts in which I tell you guys what we're talking about from the week, some screenshots of like articles and things that helped inform us. And then on Sundays, I'm doing a little recap of the required viewing for our fangirl nonsense. So the day that episodes drop, I go and post all the videos that we're talking about in our fangirl nonsense section so that if you don't know what's going on in Mr. Harry Styles world, you can be caught up. All this is over on Instagram. As always, you know where to find us at Name3Songs. And this week on our Patreon, we did have some extra fangirl nonsense to discuss, which is that Zendaya is in the fanfic of all fanfic type of movies and that she's in a thruple. She's playing tennis. She's causing drama. I saw this trailer and I was like, I need Jenna to react to this. We need to record a little conversation about what our hopes and dreams are for this movie based off of this like two minute long trailer and boy was it a fun like what 13 minute little conversation over on patreon so we're doing little things like that where we're seeing like fun shit happening on the internet discussing it over on patreon for little mini bonus episodes we do have a new patreon member that we'd like to thank for joining us so julietta thank you so much for joining our patreon we really appreciate that And if you guys want to get any of the bonus content, so our old Music Meltdown episodes and Did You Hears, as well as these fun new mini episodes that we're doing, you can get that at patreon.com slash name three songs. And with that, 
It's time for our favorite part of the week, fangirl nonsense. The big deal, the big thing, obviously, is always Harry Styles. It's always a Harry Styles moment because we can't escape him. We refuse to escape him. And also, this has been haunting my mind since it happened to the point where it feels like it happened both three seconds ago and 300 years ago. But I yes. think that this might be the first Harry Styles moment that is haunting Jenna more than it is haunting me. So I will let yes. Jenna tell you yes. guys what is going on because I love this. <laughs> Okay, okay. So last week we had the Harry Styles interaction in which allegedly there was a fan sign that said shag question mark and he gave the most mischievous smirk, grin and shrug that we were living in our minds rent free forever. But this maybe topped, I don't know, for me, this like topped last week of he like spots a fan in the crowd. He's like looking for a fan in the crowd. He's like, who should I talk to? Who should I talk to? You. He's like, you, you like, yes, you. And then the fan was probably like, who me? And then he's like, yes, you. And then he mocks the fan and does the like looking over the shoulder thing. He's like, I'm talking to you, which like I thought was hilarious because like for example I'm just comparing this to like when I saw TXT and like the episode we did like a few weeks back of like my experience being on the floor I was just like are they looking at me are they just like generally looking in this area (laughs) are they looking at the person behind me so like that interaction I was already like okay relatable literally me then he's like what's your name and it's like Lorraine or like Lauren or like however you say it in like the French accent he's going on about he's like I can pronounce that like it's not that bad like it's not so difficult you're fine whatever then he's like it's your birthday day he's like when's your birthday and she's like tonight and he's like what do you mean your birthday's tonight that's not how it works she's like no like at midnight so he's like how old are you she's like i'm turning 27 they're having banter okay they're having like a lot of banter then he gets to the point where he's like any big dreams any big dreams for 27 and like the fans start like giggling they're like giggling and laughing and he's just like staring and he's like big dreams any big dreams? He, like he's going on and then he just like no but laughs and walks the away the context is is that there is another video So I will edit these together to make life easier for everybody. There's another video where the crowd cam like is on the girl. And so you can see the girl. And so when he's doing this, she then like while he's waiting for her response, she's clearly thinking about what to say. And she points at her and then points at him and then giggles. And now, Jenna, you can continue. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. So I think that's why we had a few POVs of this. But literally, like, he's like, any big dreams? And she's like, you and me? You and me? And it's just so funny because he asked it, like, several times. And, like, it's pretty obvious what she's asking. But I think he was just like, what is she doing? And then he just is like, He, like, smirks. And is like, oh, you silly goofy. Like, doesn't say it. But he's kind of like, oh, shucks. And, like, kind of, like averts everybody's eye contact from him like he turns away from the crowd he's just like embarrassed yeah and then he goes this is a family show and then he's like or is it and he goes he's like it's not your birthday or is it and he just goes this is a family show or is it and he just keeps going back and forth and the crowd's like freaking out he's just kind of like losing his mind a little bit of like a fan literally just like asked him yeah it was just very funny that like a few weeks ago when we did our thing about k-pop and about interactions and i was just like going on about how like fans don't expect interactions and i'm like you know what maybe i have to take some of this back because i feel like these people up there in the crowd are like demand number one demanding a harry interaction number two i said that no one would ever take a sign to a harry styles concert being like be my boyfriend question mark and I think this is basically the Harry Styles version of that, of like, you and me, you and me, the shag question mark. Like, European fans are being bold, so bold. living for every second of it, if I'm honest. Anyway, in more One Direction news, (laughs) Zayn has returned from the dead, which is very exciting. I'm very excited to see what he does with music. I have absolutely no faith in this man ever performing live, especially with, like, fans... Getting to the point where they're like throwing bricks at artists, like they're throwing, but only the female ones. Yeah, so. maybe maybe Zayn will okay. be fine. I'm scared about Zayn and AI and like a hologram of him as a concert, so that he can Ooh. just like stay at his farm feeding his goats. Yeah, but I am excited to see what he does with music and if he's gonna go full R&B boy, if he's gonna 
have some like rappers on his songs. There's so many options and I'm so excited, but I also think it's really funny that we have not like really seen that much of him in regards to like professionally putting out music in a while. And that his debut as a solo artist with that fader interview was him doing that bad boy shoot on a motorcycle. And he's returning with a bad boy shoot on a motorcycle. And I think that that is very interesting, very tongue in cheek of him. He's always been a Bradford bad boy. <laughs> he's always been a Bradford bad a boy. Bradford bad boy. It's always, it's always there. And this week we did ask on our Instagram for y'all to give us some fangirl nonsense that we can discuss. So this week we have Cassie, who I had no idea this was going on. So Fall Out Boy has been just started their recent like u.s tour their stage setup is kind of insane and i did not know this and cassie told us that fallout boy has a magic eight ball on their stage and it's built into the set so pete specifically asks it questions pertaining to songs that they haven't played in a long time or have never played before and it's different each night i have anxiety about which song i will get on my show and i can't stop <laughs> thinking about it this is so fun i love this so much because fallout boy has such a big back catalog and i feel like when bands have that big of a back catalog it's so likely for a tour even if it is a tour for a new album to be new album songs plus the greatest hits so the fact that they're like not doing a greatest hits tour and are doing kind of like fan favorites and like giving old songs get opportunity to shine and even giving just like underloved songs, A Time to Shine, I think is like really incredible. And it feels very Fall Out Boy of them. I don't know how better to explain that, but I mean, growing up as like a very big Fall Out Boy fan, they were always very much about doing it for the fans. Like I was part of their fan club and like there was always opportunities to like get cool things, whether that be like a free meet and greet or early entry to a concert or whatever the case is like they were always giving back so i think the fact that even now all these years later they're doing something that feels very much like for the fans is really beautiful and i love that for them yeah and not every show is special yeah. i really like that yeah. so if you guys didn't know like every week when the episode drops i've been posting like a roundup of our fangirl nonsense so if you want to see like any of the stuff we're talking about the videos are going to be posted on our instagram when this episode comes out so you can like actually like go watch the video for this like the magic eight ball thing because cassie sent us some and they're very they're actually like really cool yeah. and it's like a fun like bit <laughs> on stage i mean pete's always been doing weird shit at their concerts so i believe it Another funny comment that I saw was Leah from She Will Rock You podcast commented and said, Maisie Peters has the number one record in the UK after Elton John tried to start a chart <laughs> war with her and then says this is just a week after he was praised for welcoming new artists during his Glastonbury set. And I was like, Sarah, like what... <laughs> what the what is this chart war like i don't know what's going on and then sarah was explaining to it to me and at the same time i found this tweet, <laughs> this tweet that is, is so funny. funny it's from this person at delicately red says why are elton john and Maisie peters publicly having some sort of blur oasis <laughs> battle for number one album in the uk but elton john is putting all of his wealth power and fame behind it and Maisie peters is literally just a small starting artist begging for her fans to buy a copy it's so funny i'm really proud of her that she yeah got the number one like i like her even though she literally is just trying to be taylor swift like i do like Maisie peters <laughs> shocking i know but i just think it's so funny because literally if you like look at the people posting about elton john's album he literally was just like calling in all of his celebrity friends to be like post about my album so people go and buy it and i'm like okay like haven't you like told everyone you're gonna retire like 300 times in the last like two years and then just not. Sir, you don't need to be going this hard on promotions. Literally, sir. Like, this man is... You're a this, legacy This man act. is knighted. <laughs> Literal, sir. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a minute to understand what you're saying, but that is funny. I do have one more fangirl moment, which is that Olivia Rodrigo is back. And I am loving it. Can we just talk about how last time her music video concept was Jennifer's Body and this time it's Twilight? I love that Olivia Rodrigo is full force being like, yes, it is the year of our Lord 2008. <laughs> I, love, I love that so much. Even though she was born in 2003 and she was literally five years old. 
but I'm here for it. I yes. love it. Like she's embodying MySpace culture somehow, and I don't know how she's doing it, but I love it. The song is really good. I think it's interesting because it very clearly is about the questionable age gap relationship that she was in that we had mentioned briefly of not her repeating the faults of her elders. It's allegedly about ex-boyfriend Adam Faze. At the time they dated, she was 18 and he was 24. And she does, re- she makes a reference to the age gap in the lyric. So the song is very, very good. But speaking of Olivia Rodrigo, I do want to start this episode off with a little bit of, wow, Name Three Songs is doing such a good job. More people should listen to our podcast, Pat on the Back, because uh, fangirl media literacy is becoming even more necessary than I think our reach reaches to. So (laughs) if you guys aren't still on Elon Musk's Twitter, there was a little bit of like, literally the only best, the best way to describe this was a brouhaha. This was literal nonsense. (laughs) Y'all, some of the words that come out of Sarah's mouth sometimes, funny. Continue, continue. That's literally what it was. It was like, what is this? Because there was an account that was called Olivia Rodrigo Updates, and then the at was the Rodrigo Hub. So basically, this random guy on the internet made a bunch of fake stories about Olivia Rodrigo, including that she supposedly did an interview with Teen Vogue in which she allegedly claimed that Johnny Depp inspired her upcoming album, Guts, claiming that Olivia said, quote, I supported his 2022 trial and I really wanted this album to reflect on his edgy rock star gothic aesthetic. They also claim that in V magazine, she said that I found out a long time ago, you should never meet your idols. Artists I used to look up to tried to take credit for my songs and shaded me behind the scenes, which a lot of people were assuming was about Taylor Swift. And like, these are like really unhinged things that could have led to like Olivia Rodrigo being like docs on the internet and people coming for her because Like, these are really insane things to say. But this, like, fake article for this publication supposedly called The Dartmouth, this was genuinely hilarious satire in which they said, to all the success for her age, comparisons between her and Move singer Beyonce popped up, claiming that Olivia Rodrigo said, I know about the comparisons about me and Beyonce, but I don't understand them. My songwriting is better than her, and I take my craft seriously. Also, my album Sour sold more than any of Renaissance or like something like that. She's like, why am I being compared to a has-been? I like that is unequivocally hilarious. Like that is so fun. Like <laughs> that, is, that is so funny to like just imagine like a young girl in pop music ever saying that about Beyonce on Beyonce's internet. Like, could you imagine? Like that's so unhinged. And like if they had went this route of like being satirical, like it would have been funny. But the other things are genuinely dangerous. And also there were a good portion of people in the response tweets that believe these to be true. Because like this person literally like copied the fonts from this website, like actually took journalist names who actually write for these publications and like saying that these articles and these interviews were done by them. And so, like, this is where it's super important to have the media literacy skills that we are trying to teach you guys about having and the importance of having them because having these situations pop up online where people are just posting unequivocally false information and attributing unhinged quotes to celebrities, this could really cause issue going forward when it's so hard to know what's real and what's not. I think also because this was under the guise of a fan account, fan accounts do this all the time where they post screenshots and no literal no links. And so I think the initial reaction was fans thought this was real. And the first one that I saw was the Johnny Depp thing. And I was like, she would literally never say this. Like, what is going on? And I saw Tamar Herman. She's been on the podcast before. She's a journalist. She writes a lot about K-pop. She had quote tweeted it and was like calling it out. So that's how I saw about it. And it was honestly like two, like right after this happened, like an hour or two after this happened. So there were a few people being like, what? But for the most part, people were immediately like, this is fake. And then like, as the day went on, uh, I was talking to Tamar like later in the day about this. Everyone in the quotes was like, this is fake. But also they found out who the person was who did this because he was in some group chat and he posted in the group chat that he made this account that he did it and so then whoever was in the group chat posted that to the internet and then fans were literally posting his address online 
doxing him. So it was like the wildest turn of events in like a very short span of time of like fake screenshots that were posing to be like kind of somewhat real, people believing him, then people realizing it was fake. Then suddenly people doxing this person on the internet. Yeah. So there are lots of layers of this where it's like just because somebody's doing something that's like not great doesn't mean that you should dox them or attack them online. But also you shouldn't spread false information about somebody that could lead to them also getting doxxed and hated online. So it's really a catch all situation. Not a great one. This isn't like a big breaking news topic to discuss. But I just think that, again, this is like even more proof that paying attention and learning how to like digest media ethically and know and have some media literacy knowledge in your back pocket is like very important with the way in which the internet is going right now. Yes, absolutely. I'm just glad it didn't turn into a bigger thing than it really could have been because my immediate reaction was, oh shit, like there's gonna have to be damage control for this. Luckily, fans figured it out and shut it down pretty quickly. Also this week, we have Colleen Ballinger responding to all of the allegations with a ukulele song. I don't think there's ever been a more cringe millennial YouTuber thing to do, but it just feels like these YouTubers who have been around for a decade, who are this age, are coming up with really fucking bad apology, not apology videos. But yeah, I want to hand it over to Sarah for the details. I mean, I feel as though this era of YouTuber was like programmed at some point with like, here's how to handle these situations. Everything's a joke. Nothing is serious. As long as you make a video that feels like an apology video, people will take it as an apology. But the internet has caught up with these YouTubers and no longer just sitting and looking forlorn in front of your camera win you the empathy of the greater internet mob. But this is what I was thinking about is like for YouTubers, their entire career is online Mm -hmm. um, and their entire career is talking into a camera. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's never going to be a good YouTuber apology video because like they're never like actually in front of people who are mad at them. Like, it's so weird to, like, think about detaching yourself, like, just logging off the internet and, like, it literally doesn't matter anymore. So I just feel like there's probably never been, like, an actual sincere YouTube apology video. I honestly didn't pay enough attention to YouTube like that. Nobody I've watched personally on YouTube ever had to make a YouTube apology video. So I don't know. Oh, wait, I guess the Try Guys, but that also felt fucking weird. I forgot about the Try Guys. That's funny. (laughs) I just feel like everyone's done something weird where, like, they don't take it actually seriously. I mean, this was literally so unhinged because... Because I clicked on this YouTube video and Colleen is sitting there. Also, this is another important thing is like, I have not looked at this woman in years. I literally thought that she had not eaten for three months. I was like, is she okay? Like she was so frail to me. Apparently, according to people on the internet, Colleen has long been an issue, a trigger, what some would say in regards to people's feelings about body image issue. I don't know the extent of that, but I could understand it because that woman body checked everybody at least seven times in this weird fucking pseudo not apology, not accountability video because she literally like sits down, just looks forlorn in front of the camera for like way longer than she should have. And then out of seemingly thin air, pulls out a ukulele and starts singing. And it was just like so crazy. And she's like, oh, like the people on my team said that I shouldn't talk about this, that I shouldn't address this. But like, it's not talking if I'm singing. And a lot of people online, like like the consensus is that she did this in song because it's easier to copyright strike a song than it is a speaking video. Ooh. Which is interesting. And she just kind of like goes into this song about like, oh, you're asking for accountability. You're asking for all this. And she's like, oh, like you don't care about like what I have to say. Like She's like mocking the people on the internet because she's acting as if like, oh, if I held myself accountable, they would still come for me. So it doesn't matter. Which is like such a fucking unhinged take to have when you're being called out with receipts for grooming children it's such an unhinged thing to be like it doesn't matter even if i would help like even if i sat here and like held myself accountable to my behavior like people would attack me anyway her mindset is is i'm never gonna win so why not just make it a joke is what it felt like yeah yeah no i agree i also just think like 
in that context, someone who got called out and like is posting whatever within a week, within days, like what are we really expecting from them? Yeah. Like they're not going to have learned anything. Like they're probably just going to be mad that they're being called out, which is basically what she's doing. Yeah. The video itself is never accountability. No. So it's like, what is it really, you know? I mean, I think that people wanted her to address it and be like, I don't know, like fucking take a break, maybe reevaluate. It's complicated because she doesn't work for a business. She's not hired by people, really. It's like she is the entity in and of itself. It's the Colleen Ballinger show with a spinoff of Miranda Sings. Like there is no higher up that can be like, we fired Colleen. She, right, next right. time you see her she's gonna be bagging groceries at a Wegmans like there's not that sort of situation where like with try guys where they're like you will never see or hear from Ned ever again we dealt with his ass like there is nobody <laughs> to be like we dealt with Colleen's ass because Colleen is in charge of Colleen you know yeah and yeah. I think that it's really interesting because it's like I mean there were so many things wrong with this like pseudo apology that like I don't even know how to get into it because she was just constantly was making the excuses of herself where she's like, I wasn't a groomer. Like I was just a loser with like an internet platform. And like, I was trying to connect with my fans. She was like, I was just like a weird aunt. And it's like a weird aunt is two steps away from a pedophilic uncle. Like, how are they not like, that's the same fucking thing. Bestie. (laughs) You made your whole career about jokes about a creepy uncle. I think you should understand this. But there was this article that I had pulled from the Daily Beast by Laura Bradley just to like kind of have some quotes in front of us. And Laura made an interesting point about how in multiple points in Colleen's song, she compares the loss of her reputation to that of death, which I also found really interesting. And Jenna and I both kind of touched on this right now and also last week in talking about kind of like YouTube fame. But it is this weird thing because like a creator's fame stock is of such a lower value than that of somebody who's like a movie star or a singer or whatever the case is where like their fall from grace is so much shorter of a fall like they can so much easier go back to like being a normal person than a bona fide celebrity could and i think that these youtubers and such know that and so when there is a possibility of their whole career being taken away from them because of their own mishaps and like general stupidity they freak the fuck out and they're like this is going to end my life everything's going to be over after this like everything is ruined because i was stupid and careless and dumb and being a predator and I just think it's really interesting because Shane Dawson, for example, is like a YouTuber that got called out and like kind of disappeared, never to really be heard from again. And both he and Colleen, like both have had enough success that like they could live off that money for a while and probably do some things behind the scenes, like in still the creator realm. But like, it's not in the same situation where like you have like a Brad Pitt thing where we talked about like the alleged abuse with Angelina Jolie and how... Hollywood's just ignoring it. There's a way less likelihood of people just ignoring bad behavior by an internet celebrity than there is the ignoring of bad behavior by a real celebrity. Yeah, and I think the main thing is that at the end of the day, these people are profiting off of their personalities, not their talents. Celebrities, musicians, they are putting out art Mm -hmm. that is separate from their personalities. And this is why we have the conversation about like, can you separate the art from the artist? But with TikTok, with, I was said TikTokers, but I mean, that's kind of the same thing. Like yeah. with YouTubers, with influencers, they're popular because of their personalities. So when their personality is a thing that's kind of fucked up, it's really like, you can't, you can't, can't disconnect it. There's nothing to disassociate yeah. from. It's the same thing. The Venn diagram is a circle. Yeah. So I think that is interesting to note where like actors can hide behind the fact that they've just been in movies and never have to say anything to the public. Yeah. So it's definitely an interesting situation. I honestly like can't like I've since this came out, I've been trying to like put myself in her brain of like trying to think like what the thought process was behind putting that out. 
and like where she could have possibly thought that that would have taken her because the likes to dislike ratio is so fucking crazy. <laughs> Did they ratio her on yeah, YouTube? Yes, they ratioed her on YouTube. Like there obviously are people who liked it. I think most of them are probably too young to know any better because most people who are like over a certain age are just being like, this is so tone deaf. Like this is crazy. Like honestly, I think that whatever this is, because it's not an apology and it's also not holding herself accountable. So a toxic gossip train ukulele jam of hers that she decided to release for no fucking real reason. Like, I think that at the end of the day, like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, I think that she would have been better off. She's not coming back. Like, from I don't, this. Yeah, I think that she would have been better off not saying anything than doing this. Like, I think that this yeah. is worse than remaining yeah. quiet because it's as yeah. if she's mocking these people and their feelings. Because, like, yes. even if she, like, didn't mean to come off that way or whatever the case is, it's like, you should still sit there and be like, yeah, I overstepped a line. I shouldn't have done that. At the time, I just, like, didn't really understand this. And it's like, okay, yeah, you were old enough to know better. But at least, like, you could have acknowledged and been like, yes, I did do this. But she's literally acting as if, like, oh, it's internet gossip that you guys are just jumping on the clout bandwagon about. Yeah. I also just feel like the allegations from Adam were pretty straightforward and clear. And there were receipts that, like, they're not even really allegations, in my opinion. But, like, they were so severe. And, like, I'm sure this happened to multiple people, like, not just Adam. So it's like, how are you even supposed to come back from that at all? Yeah. No, I don't I don't know. And I just think that like her going on there and acting as if it's like a joke and like we're blowing things out of proportion for caring and like discussing it and taking out of side and all that. Her disconnect from reality is so severe. Yeah. And that's kind of what I meant about YouTubers like talking to the camera all the time. Yeah. It's like they're in this own little world of their personality and the people who have been following them and supporting them and because of this per- this world that they built because of their personality, there's like so much disconnect from real life. Yeah. In like YouTuber world. Yeah. It's crazy to watch. It was so unhinged. I mean, there were a couple people on Twitter who fully wrote out like a transcript of this 10 minute song. Everybody's ripping her to shreds on TikTok. It's not great for her. I mean, honestly, if I were her too, just based off of the receipts and all of the traction it's getting, I would be genuinely afraid about child protective services coming to like make sure that the home is safe for her children. And so the fact that she's making light of it when like child endangerment is involved in this whole thing, like feels very crazy to me. Again, I don't really think that there is like any big major conclusion to be had from something like this. Again, I think it just shows that internet fame is like a whole world in and of itself where I think that these people believe themselves to be like way bigger of a deal and way more important to the zeitgeist than they really are. And just the fact that like she seemingly thinks that that was the right move and that she can use that to like recover from this just shows a disconnect and honestly makes me more anxious for the future of people trying to find fame on the internet. So I'm just going to keep watching and seeing because I don't think that this story is over, unfortunately. So we will see where it continues from here. It never is. It never (laughs) is with those YouTubers. In other news, you probably saw this because it was all over the internet, including our Instagram. Rina Sawayama performed at Glastonbury, which is the biggest festival in the UK, one of the biggest festivals in the world, very famous festival, huge audience. Before her her song, STFU which is shut the fuck up. She gives a little speech and this is like live streamed on the BBC player. So we have like video of this. It's been going around. Rena says, I wrote this next song because I was sick and tired of microaggressions. So tonight this song goes out to a white man who watches ghetto gaggers and mocks Asian people on a podcast. He also owns my masters. I've had enough. And like Rena in this video with like there was like a corn riff going yeah. underneath like before the song started it was so powerful it was so powerful yeah. i was like yes girl please call him out call him the fuck out maddie healy 
Because here's the thing is when I saw this, my reaction was because relatively everyone's moved on from all this Maddie Healy stuff. He like somewhat apologized. He like in the New Yorker, he like didn't apologize. But then like on stage, he like spray painted a sign that said sorry and then was being like an emo boy on stage. But basically us as fans, we're just supposed to like get over all of this the white man um, so when i saw rena talked about there's that he's just like exactly i passed it you, you should get past it too let's party babies i'm gonna be cute on stage yeah so in rena doing this she signed a dirty hit she's been in the maddie healy friend circle she's best friends with charlie xcx who's dating george who's, who's in the band with maddie like whatever all very interconnected so to me i'm like this is her like as a peer calling Maddie Healy out at the biggest festival, one of the biggest festivals in the world, huge deal in England as they're all British artists. So I'm like, this is accountability. Yeah. This is her being like, no, you need to say something. And I'm honestly pretty mad that Maddie hasn't said something, but that's less about what we're here to talk about. And we're more so here to talk about what she said and the specifically related to masters. And so, I mean, just also just in general in regards to this statement and like Jenna saying how like there's multiple ways in which Rena is connected to Maddie. Like my initial thought after seeing this is that I was very shocked that this clearly was Rena explaining that Maddie at no point even acknowledged what had happened to his peers and not just to his peers, but to his label mates. Because, like, while the 1975 is signed to Dirty Hit, Maddie was the creative director at Dirty Hit from 2018 until, like, March or April of 2023. And as of this year, all four members of the 1975 own 4.09% shares of Dirty Hit, which means that anything that Dirty Hit owns, they own 4.09% of, including Rena's Masters, because Rena signed as most record deals work, which we'll get into in a little bit, in order to get the money from the record label. Like she signed over controlling shares of her masters to them, as in Dirty Hit, which again, Maddie Healy only owns 4.09% of, but that doesn't matter because in the grand scheme of things, it's like Maddie Healy was her label mate, her peer within the British music scene in her inner friendship circle. Like there are so many layers to like her connection to Maddie. And clearly if she's still this mad about it, that means that not only as a label mate and as like a partial owner of the label, did he not say anything also as somebody within her friendship group, he did not say anything to her about this, which just shows how little he thinks that this actually really matters, which is like what personally didn't sit right with me, but we're not here today to talk about Maddie Healy in the grand scheme of things. What we're here to talk about is the statement at the end of he also owns my master's and why ownership of masters is such a hot topic and becomes something where anytime an artist mentions like, oh, I don't own my masters or anytime an artist seems to be struggling or whatever the case is, these fan armies show up on Twitter, show up on Instagram, show up wherever and are like, release their masters, give them their masters, give them back control of their music. After hearing this, like Jenna and I were like racking our minds to think about like, when did the terminology of like ownership of masters like become something that the general public became so intrigued by and interested in? Because like my first personal experience of acknowledging ownership of masters and like an artist being frustrated by it was jojo with like her music from when she was a teenager and how she as kind of like this rebirth sort of situation reclaimed her music and re-recorded her music from when she was a teen as an adult to kind of like move on from her career and a shitty record deal and shitty people and all that stuff but like that happened she sings those songs again now and it's not become like her whole personality that like she reclaimed her masters by re-recording them which was something that she was legally allowed to do because a lot of record deals have that after a certain amount of time the music can be re-recorded by the artist if the artist wants to do that and so we thought about that and we're like okay well that wasn't like that big of a deal and like also jojo's not the biggest of deals i love jojo but like for most people not the biggest of deals and we're like oh you know what this comes back to because everything that always is a needle in my fucking side comes back to you. Taylor Swift. 
it always comes back to Taylor, unfortunately. But honestly, a lot of this is the one thing that I love about Taylor, which is she gaslight gatekeep girl bosses with her whole heart and soul. And <laughs> I fucking love that about her. I eat it up. It's delicious. We did an episode called When Record Labels Take Advantage of Artists. We mentioned the JoJo situation. We talk about Sky Ferreira, Ray, and Megan Thee Stallion. However, the JoJo situation was the only one where the masters were an issue and she re-recorded them. So we do talk a little bit about what record deals look like Mm -hmm. and how record labels owning the masters is a normal thing. But I do agree that... Taylor Swift is in the middle of re-recording all her albums, all her Taylor's version albums. Obviously, this is so top of mind for everyone. And I also agree, I couldn't remember like another time when this was such a big deal. So I do think it's a Taylor thing of being in our collective conscious of being a bad thing that the artist doesn't own their masters. But we're here to clarify some information, to talk about how record deals work with a little behind the scenes help. So last week, around like Thursday, Friday, the website Music Business Worldwide broke some exclusives in regards to Taylor Swift's whole masters being bought by scooter Braun situation the nda all of this stuff we're gonna have these all linked on our website so you can go check out the articles because there's a lot of back and forth there's a lot of like gossip crazy stuff going on here but i think because the master situation is such a big deal right now and such a conversation and so many people don't understand how it works like that's mainly what we want to focus on like what is the big deal of ownership of masters why are people so obsessed with it right now why was Taylor so obsessed with it? Spoiler alert, it's because Taylor Swift is a businesswoman and that's really all she cares about. But we read through these articles. Our minds were kind of blown. Like we tried to do more research like based off of articles and stuff and it was really difficult. So we reached out to a couple friends in the music industry to see if anybody would talk to us. Again, this is like something that isn't secret but feels kind of secretive because it's so complicated and it's so layered and like saying the tiniest of things wrong could wind up people getting in trouble or like doxxed by fans or attacked or whatever the case is but we did get like a senior level executive at a record company to talk to chat with us to give us some information so we're going to be talking based off of a conversation that we had with this person in the industry obviously we can't link back to sources in regards to this but it was a very informative conversation because it's like jenna and i came into it backed up with the research that we had done for our prior episode having read all of the stuff that Music Business Worldwide put out about Taylor and other research that we have been doing to try and understand this to help you guys understand what's going on more and help ourselves understand what's going on more. So we're really appreciative to this senior exec for sitting down chatting with us, like giving us some insight because this is like such a complicated thing. But really at the end of the day, what I think the most important takeaway is about like what a master is is like a master is like the master recording of a song and going into that is obviously like it's not just the artist who worked on that so it's the singer whose name is on it It, we'll use taylor swift as an example because like she's the biggest example of it so it's obviously like taylor and then taylor has musicians that got paid for to come in and do the music with her there's also a producer that worked with her there's going to probably be like a couple other music making people in that room that are helping create that album that song what have you and so that's like 10 to 12 people put in the work to make this song real and a master at the end of the day is really kind of like having ownership in a company i explained it when we were talking to this music exec as If you're pitching on Shark Tank and you come in and you're like, I currently am 100% stakeholder in this company and I'm offering you 30%. And then two sharks want some and they're like, we'll come in, but we want 40%, 20% each. And so it's that sort of situation where when Taylor goes into the recording room, Taylor owns 100% of the song. By the time that song is done... Taylor owns a certain percentage and every other person in that room now owns a percentage of that master. So Taylor and like most artists retain publishing rights for a song. And the publishing rights means that like Taylor owns 
the lyrics and the idea of that song. If somebody covers that song and it's more successful than her version of that song, Taylor will make money off of that for the rest of her life. But when it comes to like a master situation, once the master is made, nobody can really own 100% of that, except for in very particular specific situations. And so that's why it is like the bargaining chip when it comes to record deals. Because the record label knows that the record label has a ton of money that they can give to an artist to go and create said master. So when you sign a record deal, they're like, okay, we're going to give you a million dollars to make two albums. You're going to go into that recording studio. We're going to have you working with the biggest producers, the most talented session musicians you can find, like a couple extra songwriters just in case you need help. And we're going to own a majority percentage of that finished product. But you still will own a large percentage of that, depending on how famous you are. But if this is a Taylor Swift and this is me just creating numbers out of thin air because nothing in this information gave us numbers. And this is also not a breakdown that I asked today when we were talking. But it's like the record label, let's say, owns like... 40% of the record Taylor owns 25 and then everybody else involved it divvies up the other 25% of that record like that master's ownership and then everybody that owns a percent of the album gets money anytime that song is played or bought etc I think also in that so it's like they give you the money up front to go and do these things they have to earn the money back at some point at the end of the day the record label is a bank with resources and services, Mm -hmm. but they have to earn that money back. So by owning the biggest share in the master, this is how they're able to get their money back. So let's say this artist goes and sells 500,000 units. If that 500,000 units equates $1 million, then it's recouped, which means that artist is not going to start making money until after that $1 million is paid back. And also $1 million is like a shit ton of money. So like most artists are not getting $1 million. Most of them are probably getting twenty or $50,000. Yeah. But essentially the artist is not going to make money off their music until that is paid back to the record company. And then once that's paid back, then they get the the share of 40, 40% record label, 25% Taylor in this made up scenario. Yeah. And this is why like I think it's so important to understand really like how a master works and why it's broken down like this and also understanding that when an artist is like and they own my masters nobody a hundred percent can ever own a master because there's so many fucking people involved in creating that and obviously yes there can be a majority stakeholder but at the end of the day again if the record deal that was signed is a good deal the singer still gets veto power in regards to like how that song is used a singer no matter what no matter what the situation is they get veto power over how a song is used like politically and what was the other on-demand streaming services if it goes out anywhere except for sync ad so this would include like making cds making vinyl like making any kind of physical merchandise related to the music sync and advertising is a little bit different like where songs get placed is a little bit different but i think notably what a lot of people remember is taylor swift said i can't perform my songs live because i don't own my masters which is not 100 percent true anyone can perform any song live without even owning a percentage of the masters like whatsoever the thing was that with that specific award show, and I think it was the American Music Awards that Taylor was referencing when she said she couldn't perform, is because that award show was going to be filmed and it was going to then be put on a demand streaming service where it was going to be monetized. And the monetization is why she couldn't perform it because that then goes into the deal with the label and people approving things. Yeah. That's why it got complicated. That's why she said she couldn't perform her songs, which it's not true that she could never perform her songs. It was true that she could not perform her songs on that show that was going to be recorded and then monetized. But it's not even that she couldn't. It's that she didn't want to because she didn't want because she didn't to want get money. Getting money. Which, like, yes. <laughs> again, gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss, all you want, Miss Swift. Like, I approve of that message 100%. Like, be petty. I'm here for it. That's fine. But I think that it's a disservice to her fans and just like the smarts of the general public to gaslight everyone into believing that, like, oh, if you don't own something, 
somebody is controlling you so much that like you can't perform that song like i could go to the macy's day parade and perform a taylor swift song like that's completely legal like who's gonna hire me to do that no one but i could like it's literally crazy that'd be as if somebody did like a crazy karaoke version of taylor swift and put it on tiktok and their tiktoks monetized like that's allowed like i could do that it's legal to do that. That's like how covers of songs exist, you know? I'm sure Taylor would come for me and ask for some money because like that's what Taylor does, but I could legally do it, you know? But I think that that is what a lot of people get so confused about and so frustrated with when they hear their favorite artists saying things about how like, oh, like I don't own my masters, like I don't like who owns my masters, whatever, is like because of all of the fanfare around Taylor's situation with Scooter Braun, a lot of fans now automatically think that if somebody doesn't own their masters, that means that they can't decide when and if they're performing their music. And that's not true and not fair to those fans to have that like stress about their favorite artists, like not owning their songs like that. The fact of the matter is that most artists do not own their masters. And for most artists, it's not a problem. For most artists, it's never a problem. And I spoke to another friend who's in a band about this situation as well. And that point was also really interesting because their point was like, with Rena, I can see it being a bigger deal because she's signed to an indie record. She knows everybody that has ownership of the masters and like of her music in general. She knows every person that she's working with. And then on top of that, with the Maddie thing, like we already said, like there's layers to her relationship with Maddie. And then, but they were saying in comparison with like my band, we're signed to a major label. I don't even know who in that label owns my masters. They were like, I don't know which one it what like who it is i don't know how many people are involved like i don't know how that works all i know is that them owning the masters means that we as a band get to go and record in cool studios we get to go on tour making music gets to be my life and that's all that really matters to me and i think that a lot of artists feel similarly to that and in most instances where we're seeing people outwardly talking about like these issues with their masters is because they emotionally are connected to their songs, which rightfully so they should be. And they are also emotionally conflicted by the person who they know owns the biggest share yeah. of the of that recording of the song and therefore is making money off of them. And I can see it like it's the same way as like child stars who get emancipated from their parents because their parents are stealing their money. Yeah. These artists can feel the same way about the people who own the largest percentage share in regards to like Rena or Jojo or Taylor Swift. Yeah. I think in the Rena situation, her comment was more so like she for personally feels like it's fucked up that somebody who's like making racist remarks about Asian people is profiting off of her masters, like rightfully so. So I think there's scenarios where there can be this friction between the person who owns the masters and the artist. And then the artists are like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is basically what happened with Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun, where Ithaca Holdings had bought Taylor Swift's masters. There was (laughs) a lot of back and forth about Taylor Swift having the opportunity to buy her masters back, but saying that she didn't want to because she was going to be asked to sign an ironclad NDA in which she could never talk bad about Scooter ever again. The Music Business Week articles kind of have a lot of information if you feel like educating yourself more. And I'm just going to leave it at that because it's literally a wormhole of a million things. But the point that I'm making here is at the time when this relationship with Scooter and Taylor selling the masters was happening, it was 2019 to 2020. In this time, she was already signed to UMG. She was already planning to re-record and do Taylor's versions. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm like, she doesn't really have a lot of reason to spend $300 million to buy back her masters from a man that she doesn't like when she can just re-record them herself yeah and not have to spend all that money to me it makes sense that she would not go through the deal with scooter and instead choose to do taylor's versions from a business money financial standpoint beef aside whatever beef there is aside i think financially it makes more sense i mean like from what i was reading and getting out of this article is like you said it's like the plan was already in action for her to do taylor's versions even before 
she quote unquote lost her masters. But the thing is, is it's like just because Ithaca Holdings did this deal with Big Machine Group doesn't mean that they now own 100% of Taylor's masters. Taylor still continues to have the percentage of equity in those masters that she always had because they didn't buy that percentage. And the thing that I also found really interesting is it's like her making these statements of like how she was never offered the opportunity to buy them. But that's not really how the music industry works because masters are essentially like a bargaining chip for anything. And like, I don't know how Big Machine was doing financially. I don't know like why they did this move to sell those masters. Well, no, Big Machine as a whole was bought by Ethical Holdings, not specifically her masters. Scooter Braun then specifically sold her masters to Shamrock. Okay. So Ithaca Holdings acquired Big Machine. That's why Hybe acquired Ithaca, which then acquired... I feel like I thought that Big Machine was bought, but I didn't want to say it. So I'm glad you're confirming that my thought was true. <laughs> Look, I spent two <laughs> hours of my life on these articles. This is why I'm saying we could literally do two like two whole episodes about the amount of information that was in these articles. And we're trying to do the condensed version for y'all. But like I took in-depth <laughs> notes about all this because I was trying to understand everything. So like with Big Machine essentially being like, we're open for sale if someone would like to buy us. And this is also what they said in the articles. It's like Taylor was never going to buy Big Machine. She just would have wanted to buy her masters back. But if Big Machine's on sale without Taylor's masters as part of the deal, they're not going to get as much money. And so it's not as enticing of a deal for a potential buyer. And so that's never going to be an option because the Taylor masters are going to be the jackpot that gets Big Machine bought. And so there's just not a world where Taylor Swift is like, I'm going to own a record label now. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense as far as Taylor being like, I always wanted to buy my masters from Big Machine. Is it's like that was their biggest bargaining chip, wasn't it? But I also think this is a scenario where it's like, the industry is the industry and music is music. And sometimes they butt heads of at the end of the day, the industry is here to make money and people who are at the top of the industry are here to make money. And this is how they do it. And that's the other thing. It's like, obviously of course, emotions are going to be involved. Like we're humans. Like I'm empathetic to the fact that this hurt Taylor, but also at the end of the day, it's like, she is a businesswoman. She understands that capitalist queen you know like she understands how this works i understand that like somebody who she does not like being the head of the company that bought big machine felt like a stab in the back to her like i get it but also at the end of the day it's just business and the fact that taylor even before all of this was planning to re-record her songs as a way to like get more money and like get more number one albums and potentially get more Grammys, you know, like all of these steps, all of these things that could happen from putting out a set like new versions of music. Yeah. Like Jenna said already, it financially just made more sense for her to remake the albums and then her fans support her by listening to those versions and like her only performing those versions and only approving those versions to go on to like, streaming things and all of those things that she has control over in regards to her old music because the artist gets a veto. I mean, if you think about it in that context, career-wise, it was probably a better move to do Taylor's yeah. versions because she's getting extended versions. We're getting like additional lyrics we didn't have before, like music videos we didn't have before. She's doing this in a way that not only gives fans more art, like gives her better chances at the Grammys, all that stuff. Like if you think about it, like career-wise, like in from all, it almost feels like from all sides, yeah it benefits Taylor to have done it yeah, this exactly. way. Yeah, exactly. There's way less long-term benefit for fans and for Taylor, monetarily for Taylor specifically, for her to have bought back her masters because it's like, what are you going to do with that? Like, there's only so much money you can make from... The best of? From your music. <laughs> a best yeah, of album? but th- that's what I'm saying. Like, there's only so much money you can make from putting out a greatest hits album or putting your songs in movies or TV shows or whatever, whereas there's so much more capital in creating new versions of songs and giving us a couple bonus extra songs and re-releasing that with like 30 different album variants. So people want to collect them all. I do think it's also interesting to note that the way this was explained to us from our source 
was something that I hadn't thought about before where like if you let's say we're talking about a major label that has major artists who are bringing in a load of cash like they're recouping those advances they're making a ton of money the label's making a ton of money some of that money goes into investing in smaller rising artists because it's a bank the bank has money the money then they can go put into smaller artists so it's like when they're part of a label where they have like a really superstar artist that artist, the revenue that's coming from them is also then going back into other artists. So I do think in that regard, it's interesting because like Taylor now owns all her masters. Someone else who owns their masters completely outright is Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. In that regard, because right now Taylor signed to UMG, Universal, but she owns all her masters. They're just getting a percentage deal for distribution. In that regard, none of Taylor's money that she's making is going into investing into new artists unless she makes a program to do yeah. so. Capitalist queen. Don't be mad at the messenger. Capitalism yeah. is the one at the end of the day that we are all beholden exactly. to. Exactly. And I think also it's just that thing too where there have been multiple opportunities where Taylor Swift has done something that people are like, look at her doing this big thing. And like she hasn't taken it further to also help other people. And this is like one of my big qualms with Taylor, just in regards to like her removing her music from Spotify because of like how much they pay artists and like her doing this thing where she signs with UMG in order for just them to do distribution. Like she's not doing anything to like help the little guy in any of these scenarios when the door is like literally just a little bit to the left of what she decided to do. And she could have opened the door to like help people. And instead she's not. And that's always my frustration here. But I think like really at the end of the day, like we're not here to talk about this to like shit on Taylor's decisions. Like I think she's a genius businesswoman. She's a genius gatekeep girl boss. As yeah. we said, she knows how to gatekeep girl boss. Gaslight what is it? gatekeep girl boss genius. She knows how to gaslight gatekeep girl boss. <laughs> is gaslight gatekeep girl boss just white feminism? Maybe. I don't know. I think that's something for us to think about. Uh, I, I think it is something to think about. I'm just going to drop that but there. I th- but I think really like at the end of the day, the bigger <laughs> and more important conversation is, is trying to help you guys understand like what this master's ownership is. And like Taylor, because she is like the main reason that most of us even have this terminology in our brains and think we understand it is because of her and this whole scooter brawn thing and i mean the one really big takeaway that i got from our conversation with our record label source was that nobody's ever really talking about the publishing rights and that's also can be just Mm. as big of a deal because publishing is unless you worked with other songwriters like publishing is the only thing that an artist like is usually the only thing that an artist can fully own themselves in regards to like their lyrics and that could be a really powerful thing like dolly parton owns 100 percent of her publishing and i we we talked about this briefly in the past episode once about how she wrote and first performed i will always love you which whitney houston made famous and so when whitney houston did that like dolly parton did not sign over her publishing to whitney houston like dolly parton kept that so now dolly parton makes a bank off of that whitney houston song and that's like a really big deal because there's so much potential for those things like that to happen and i mean also even like when you look at like books that quote song lyrics to get the licensing to quote that song lyric costs so much money and that's also publishing Mm. and so that's really like a big deal and i mean that's also just like the intellectual property more so than a master is because a master is a is a group effort whereas the publishing and the songwriting is a lot of times not that much of a group effort. And if it is every person in that group was there for a reason and wanted to be there, etc. you know, like that was a team effort rather than like a business group effort in regards to a master. And so that was like a really interesting takeaway that I had from our conversation. And I mean, I just never even really thought about how a master could be viewed as like a stock or like an equity thing and that different people own different percentages. And so that was a really big takeaway as well. I mean, I don't, was there anything that you feel also was like really relevant to this that you think people that was like a takeaway other than those two things not necessarily like the biggest takeaway but just like an overall conclusion for me was that like all of this stuff is very complicated and not easy to understand And in part, I think it's that way in a very gatekeepy way of 
the same way that stocks and finances are hard to understand, it's not made easily accessible for people. This is how people get stuck in bad deals. Like we did the whole episode about this. Yeah. Younger artists who don't know what they're signing. I don't think everyone on the record label side is evil. I don't think record labels are inherently evil. I don't think these contracts are inherently evil. Yeah. I think it's very complicated for a reason and that's not a good thing, but I think there are good people who are working in the industry. I completely agree. I think very much that like the biggest takeaway from this is, is that like it's confusing for a reason. And I think that sometimes there are artists who will make comments about the master's ownership, et cetera, from a place of not fully understanding how it works or that they didn't fully understand how it worked when they agreed to whatever they agreed to for their record deal. And now that they've been in the industry longer and made more connections and learned more things, now they get it. And now they regret maybe the percentage that they gave away or whatever the case is. Because like we talk about in our Trapped in Record Deal episode that we did, depending on how much power you come into the room with is really like how much the record label is going to try and get away with. Yeah, which also is why Taylor Swift just signed this deal with Universal where she has a ton of power and Universal is barely getting any money from her at all. Yeah. And this also, again, like isn't like, oh, the record label's the villain. It's just like the record label is a business at the end of the day. And if they can get away with making way more money off of an artist they're gonna try and get away with it yeah at the end of the day it's all capitalism baby it really is i hope that this was informative to you guys i mean we i feel like we learned a lot this week in reading this article having the discussions we had it's a really complicated thing to break down so i hope we did a good job of like helping you guys understand this we're always accessible to y'all if you have questions or thoughts about this like if you need any more clarification like please slide in our dms like we'll try and give you as much information as we possibly can again like we don't work at a record label like that's not what our experience is so we can only help you as much as like our knowledge base is there for but we're here for y'all and we want to help make this more of a digestible topic so that way we see less upheaval in fandom spaces when the word masters is brought up because i think a lot of us have been having mental breakdowns of trying to understand and like wanting to support (laughs) our favorite artists in regards to these things and it's just very deep and complicated so if you would like to chat with us about this stuff we are at name three songs on all social media platforms if you have any personal grievances beef love etc to give to myself or jenna you can find us on social i'm at sarah underscore fagan and jenna is at jenna underscore million and with all that being said thank you so much for joining us this week on name three songs and until next time never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band and remember you're never too cool to listen to rena sawayama don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review they really help if you want to find out more about any of the sources we referenced in this episode you can visit namethroughsongs.com everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of americans are deficient in If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.